what I've decided that I want to do for the next couple of weeks is do something that I think is probably kind of simple in a way, but I think it's, it's really meaningful uh, to me, and I hope it's meaningful to you too. Uh, I've entitled the two weeks, Gentle as the Rain, and it's just about the gentleness of Jesus. There's, there's these two places in the Gospel of John where we see Jesus interacting with these uh, women who, in a lot of ways, they're very broken women. They're social outcasts. They're neglected, and they're abused in a culture that treats women just a little bit better than cattle. Right, but Jesus, he's just so kind in the way that he comes. And he, of course, Jesus consistently elevates women. But I love the way that he treats people who are outcasts and dejected people, how gentle and kind and gracious he is to them in a way that makes them see themselves differently. I, I, I'm so uh, impacted by the idea of, of being seen by Jesus and letting him change the way that you see yourself. And that's not to say that the message of Jesus always goes down easy. It hardly ever does. Right? In fact, Pastor Marshall just did a great message um, on, on just how uh, unreasonable a lot of the teachings of Jesus can certainly be. And that is absolutely true. And it makes it all the more amazing that he would come to people who are in no way living their lives the way that Jesus would have us live their lives. Uh, but, but he still comes with this incredible gentleness that I think is really beautiful. And so I, I don't want to oversimplify a thing today, but I, I do believe that the majority of self-destructive behavior comes from a self-destructive way of seeing yourself. You, you will always live up to the way that you see yourself. Always. Uh, if, if you believe like at the, at the core of who you are, if you believe I'm just a giant piece of garbage, it, that will ruin your life. By the way, that's what corrupt religion really has to offer, right? To tell you, you are just completely despicable, but if you come to God for some reason that I cannot fathom, he will consider forgiving you. But don't make it, you know, like, but you are a scummy person to the core. And if, if you believe that about you, then, then you will always live up to that, right? And so, so the question then is, is, what does God say about you, right? Well, well. Of course, what God says is that, that you are made in the image of God. You're an image bearer, imperfect, an imperfect image bearer, but an image bearer uh, nonetheless. The deepest reality of who you are is that you're built for love and for joy and for peace and for purity of heart and for kindness. And when you understand that truth about who you are, when you start to see yourself like that, your behavior starts to change um, automatically. You start to live there automatically. If you, for example, if you raise your daughters with a deep sense of value, then they won't settle for a relationship where they're not valued. On the other hand, if you raise kids to think they are despicable pieces of garbage, well, they will be fulfilling that process their, their whole life. They'll have to deal with that their entire life. Just so much comes from who God says we are and how we see ourselves. I just love that one of the first things Jesus does when he comes to us is he addresses how we see ourselves. And so we really see this in a couple stories that I just want to share with you. Again, it's real simple. But John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it's a familiar scripture uh, to some of you. And it goes like this, beginning verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. 
they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Hmm. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, familiar phrase, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, and with the woman still, uh, with the woman still standing there. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Uh, Raise your hand if you have read that or you're familiar with the story of the woman caught in adultery. Most, if not um, all of you, but, but I wonder if you read that in your Bible, if you noticed something kind of peculiar. Uh, in fact, there, there's like a little, um, a little uh, annotation right above this story in most Bibles that say something like this. This is just a picture of my Bible. It says this. Did you notice this in your Bible? The most ancient Greek manuscripts do not include John 5.53 through 8.11. So that's the, that's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Isn't that interesting? And by, by the way, if, if you're not familiar with this, in Scripture, as within any ancient texts, older is always better because it's closer to the source uh, who originally wrote it. That's not to say that uh, older English translations are better. That's not always the case because because we find older manuscripts and we learn what the author's intent was more. For example, some of you are probably alive when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in like the mid-1900s. Well, that revolutionized the way that we understood lots of scriptures. But when it comes to manuscripts, older is always better because we're trying to get as close as possible to the source of who wrote it. And so it's weird then to think that the oldest manuscripts didn't include this story. Isn't that weird? And of course, an atheist would look or a skeptic would say, well, then how can you guys say that the Bible is inspired? You can't even agree like what is in the Bible. This this, um, hurts the credibility of the Bible. But actually, if you understand what's happening here, it says something that I think is really uh, different. And the explanation is pretty simple, and it's this. For the, for the first three centuries of Christianity, the story of the woman caught in adultery was so scandalous that they took it out. And you're thinking, you might have made that up. Uh, look at Augustine says in the fifth century, he says this. Certain per- I, love, I love the condescension in this sentence. Certain persons of, the, of little faith, or rather em- enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, remove from the manuscript the Lord's act of forgiveness towards the, adulteries, towards the adulteress. So we see here that, that early on, this story was so um, challenging to the religious mind that they wanted a Bible that didn't have Jesus showing mercy towards sexually impure people. And it's actually true that we, we sort of do this same kind of thing in today where we, where we would look at Scripture 
And we would just think there's certain things that we would just rather not think about that Jesus would say. Right? It's, a, it's a lot easier for me to swallow a Jesus who loves me and forgives me, but doesn't make me love my enemies. Right? It's a lot easier to understand Jesus um, without praying for those who persecute you. It's a lot easier. Uh, and so, so it's just it's just an amazing idea that, that what we have here is a scripture that has been um, tossed in and out of the Bible because it's so scandalous, and I think it shows us something really beautiful about Jesus. Of course, the basic story, if you were unfamiliar, you didn't follow, is this. There's a woman who's caught in adultery, and so then the religious police, they come and they bring her, but not him. They bring her to stand before the group, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to trap Jesus into admitting that she should be killed, quote, according to the law. Right, and so Jesus bends down and he begins to doodle in the dirt. This is his response. I think this is one of the classic, like, what is Jesus doing here? It's, for me, I, I just, it's like a sick enjoyment that I get when I feel like the disciples are embarrassed of Jesus. I just love that. Because they're like expecting him to just drop the hammer all the time. Like, just wait till he says the right thing, you know, and then he just doesn't respond. And he bends down and he starts doodling in the dirt. I just, I find it cute. And then he eventually stands up and he says, of course, an infamous phrase, which is this, let anyone without sin throw the first stone. And then he bent down and he began to write in the ground more. Eventually people would begin to leave and then it's only Jesus and the woman. And then Jesus turns to the woman and says, does anyone condemn you? And she says, no, no, nobody. And he says, neither do I. Now leave your life of sin. And that's the end of the story. That's interesting when you think about John chapter 8 is that at the beginning of John chapter 8, the people are wanting to kill Jesus or wanting to kill the woman. But at the end of John chapter 8, by the end of the chapter, they're not wanting to kill the woman. They're wanting to kill Jesus himself. Right? Um, I, I debated calling this message stoners and swingers. <laughs> but I didn't. But you can write it on your paper if Pastor Marshall says it's okay. <laughs> uh, so there's, there's been like a lot of speculation, right, when it comes to what Jesus wrote on the ground. Everyone wants to know what Jesus was doodling in the middle of the crowd, waiting for him to respond. He instead chooses to bend over and write on the ground. What's interesting is... is if you think about people want to impart their wisdom, right? One of the main ways they do that is through writing. This is the only time in recorded history Jesus writes anything. In fact, when we are trying to decide whether or not we believe Jesus could read and write, there's a couple instances where he reads something, but this is the only scripture that we go to to believe that Jesus even knows how to write. And so, so you would think what he would write would probably be pretty important, right? Of course, it has long since blown away. And so I have for you, and I need you to really pay attention to this, an opinion. Okay? This is my opinion. So if you don't like it, don't worry about it. But I'm going to spend three and a half minutes telling you what my opinion is that he wrote, and I may convince some of you. 
Okay, here we go. So this story happens in John chapter 8, right? But if you go to John chapter 7, which is the verse or the chapter right before, you read that this happens during what's called the Festival of Tabernacles. Familiar? It's also called, anybody? Sukkot, right? It's a Jewish uh, tradition. It's one of the seven major Hebrew feasts on the Hebrew uh, calendar. I respect any faith system that has feasts, Personally, we don't have any in our tradition, so I just make up my own. We call it Saturday. <laughs> but they would get together. You could read about all the different seven feasts in Leviticus chapter 23. But they had spring feasts and they had fall feasts. And so you could say there was, there was four spring feasts and they are this. Passover, we've got them on the screen, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. Those happened in the spring. And then you wait till the fall, and in the fall they would have three feasts. The Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as Sukkot. Modern day, this happens in October, I think. So, so they just pass this. It's, a, it's an eight-day uh, feast. And so the Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, is the last fall feast. That's what I'm wanting to, to uh, get across. It's the last feast before winter. Right, so after this feast, then they go into winter. And so what they're hoping for in this season, as I'm sure you can think these are agriculturally minded people, what they're hoping for is that the rain will come and water their crops so that come springtime, there would be a harvest and something to celebrate at the spring feasts. And so if you can picture what's happening here for Sukkot is there's thousands of people that they come and they all gather into Jerusalem. And for eight days, uh, they're feasting and they're living in tents. I don't know why I think of like a Jewish Woodstock. The dancing would be much more Jewish. But there's thousands of people, all kinds of tents, and there's sacrifices, and there's singing, and there's special rituals, and there's feasting, and it's all centered around asking God for winter rains for their crops that they would survive in the winter. And so there was also these rabbis that would teach. And so for me, I'm I'm a teacher. Pastor Marshall's a teacher. And so for us, whenever we are, uh, okay, well, hey, will you speak at this conference? Will you, hey, maybe go and do this as a special men's weekend or whatever? We try to think of things to talk about that are pertinent to the situation we find ourselves in. And so these rabbis were no different. And so they're thinking, well, what should I share during Sukkot? Well, you can actually read some of the writings uh, that that have been traditionally taught during Sukkot, and it's all about the significance of water. That shouldn't surprise you, right? Maybe I could come up with a sermon that's centered around water. Wouldn't that be cool? And so they would have talks about about water as rain. They would have talks about water as thirst. It's like a, a metaphor for spiritual longing. But it all culminated on the eighth day of Sukkot, the last final day where they had the, the high priest would come, and he had a a pitcher of water and a pitcher of wine, and he would pour them out. It's called a libation ceremony. It's a ritual pouring, and he would pour it over the altar. And while he was doing that, the crowd would chant, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means God save us. So I'm sure you can see what's happening here is that, is that the prayer and the ritual is about God, would you bring rain and would you save us from the drought and from the famine? 
So there's thousands of people that have gathered around and they're living in tents and they're partying. And here's a question. What, what happens when people spend all day and night together having too much wine um, and celebrating a little too much? Well, inevitably, someone ends up, wakes up in the wrong tent, you know, regretting their decision, right? And so it's unsurprising that in a situation like this, that they have a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery, and they pull her out, they drag her out trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get him to admit that they ought to kill this woman, because they don't, they don't believe in Jesus, right? They have rejected Jesus, and they want to expose Jesus as a fraud, and so they challenge him with a passage from the law, right? A passage from the Old Testament. And then he bends down and he writes in the sand. Okay, so a few questions for you. Uh, what have the Pharisees and religious leaders been doing for the past eight days? The answer is feasting. And what have they been doing at the feast? The answer is teaching. And what have they been teaching about water? And lastly, and what passages might they have been teaching if they were going to talk about water? Well, that's where it gets interesting. And one of the most uh, famous Sukkot verses is from Jeremiah. Jeremiah, there's some of these passages that are about dust, which is what you have when you don't have water, right? When there's famine, what you get is a whole lot of dust. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13 in particular says this, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you, listen to this, will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. So, so this is scripture that these people knew well. They were familiar with this scripture. They had been hearing this scripture throughout the week. And so Jesus looks at them and he bends down and he writes in the sand. And, he, and he's, he's turning the verse on them without saying a single word. What he's doing, is he's, he's saying this, you, you preach of water, but you're missing the living water that's standing right in front of you. Those who turn away from the Lord will be written in the dust. So that's why many theologians, myself included, believe that written in the dust was the names of the religious leaders who were accusing the woman. Those who turn away from the Lord will be written in the dust. Jesus here is saying, in your rejection of me and your judgment of this woman, you have forsaken the Lord. Okay, so I have three points for you. Uh, if you're taking notes, you could just jot these down really quick. I think these are lessons that we can learn from this story, and then we'll receive communion. Number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. If you're bruised or broken, Jesus wants you to come to him. If you're bruised or broken, Jesus wants you to come to him. You know, when people, for whatever reason, I, I have a relationship with a number of people who are kind of still figuring out the faith and trying to decide if they're still in, if they're still out. So I have a lot of interesting conversations with people who are trying to figure out the Christian faith. And so for me, when, when people leave the Christian faith, there's lots of different excuses, right? There's, there's some heart reasons and there's some head reasons. I personally believe that behind a lot of the so-called reasons that people will give as to why they have left the Christian faith, I think behind a lot of those reasons really comes a deep sense of um, unworthiness and maybe even shame. 
right? And so just for whatever reason, maybe something that's in their past or even something that's in their present, they believe that they are somehow excluded from God's affection. And maybe it's shame from something that has been done to you, right? So you think about neglect or abuse that makes you feel like you're unworthy or excluded from the affection of God. Or maybe the shame is a result of something that's entirely your own doing, right? It's things that you have done. It doesn't matter. Either case, the solution is the same. Uh, And I think it's exposed in this question. Here's a question, honest question. Is the woman in the story guilty? Yeah, right? Of course, of course she's guilty. Like Jesus never said what she did was wrong. In fact, he acknowledges that what she did uh, was wrong. But the point that Jesus makes is much more fundamental. His point is this, is that being guilty need not result in condemnation, right? Was she guilty? Yes, but Jesus doesn't condemn her. So Jesus isn't saying that the woman didn't sin. He's saying that these men also sinned and thus are in no position to judge the woman. That's what he's saying, right? He's not saying this woman didn't do anything wrong. He's saying, well, you did something wrong too. And so who are you to judge the woman? I think this is really challenging when you read the New Testament is that you, it's hard to comprehend, especially for us when we're very um, motivated by feelings of justice, what's a challenge is when you read the New Testament, you you find Jesus not only standing up for people who are innocent, you also find him standing up for people who are guilty. Certainly, I can't be the only one that finds that challenging. It's like, why are you defending this? They are guilty. And so in your own life, you might be thinking, no, Pastor David, you don't understand. I I am guilty. I've done done really bad things. Look, I believe you. Actually, you don't have to convince. I believe you. I know that you have done really bad things. But, but here's what I know that you don't know. No one who comes to Jesus deserves him. No one. Right? And so, so it's, not a, it's never a matter of deserving it. Uh, that's never the way um, that it works. In fact, in fact, Real Christianity begins when you stop trying to earn it. That's what I think, right? Like, like if, you, if you earn it, it's not grace. If you earn it, it's not grace. If you, and that's the only thing that Jesus offers, right? The only way that you can come to him is through a free gift, free grace. And free grace is never about you deserving it because no one ever does. Number two, if you're taking notes, whenever Jesus, though, gives you a word of grace, it always includes a call to obedience and growth. Whenever Jesus, though, gives you a word of grace, it always includes a call to obedience and growth. It's funny, you you watch uh, Christian movies. I try to avoid them, but you have to sometimes if you're a pastor. Uh, What's funny, when you watch Christian movies, uh, I I think movie makers love the line, Neither do I condemn you, right? They love that. So they want this shot and it's a close-up. Neither do I condemn you. And cut. Scene. Good job, everybody. You could head home for the... Like, that's not um, the end of the scene. That's not the end of what Jesus says here. What does he say? He says this. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. And if you would allow me to be so bold, I want to say that's true love, right? Like if, 
And everybody knows that. You, you know that in your own personal relationships. If you really love someone, you hate the idea of them being destroyed, even if it's them destroying themselves, right? And, and so, so you can see that, that if God were to truly love us the way that he says he loves us, then he cares deeply about our tendency to destroy ourselves and to destroy other people. Uh, for example, let's say you adopt into your home a teenager, and let's say the teenager is a total disaster, awful behavior. Let's say they've been passed around the foster system for the last 16 years, and they are just creating a total ruckus, not a great kid, not behaviorally. And so the question would be, why did you adopt that kid? Was it because they were such a great kid? No, they're a terrible kid. Uh, no, it, it was just free grace, just free grace, just the, just love that's not conditioned upon what they would do. But now, how, how would you treat that kid now that you've adopted them? Because you love them, would you say, wow, because we love you, well, you can just keep doing everything that you, cur- you know, you can, you can keep partying and ditching school and getting into fights and sleeping around. We don't want to change any of that because we really love you. You all know that's not real love. Like real love, um, real love is um, sometimes insisting, sometimes even loudly insisting that people grow up and change their life, not because not for some ego boost for me, but because I love you and I want what's best for you. And we see that in the love of God uh, consistently. God's no different. Uh, And so because of that, when he loves you, he will always call you to uh, obedience. Uh, I do not condemn you. Now let's go clean up this life of yours. That's real love. And we can get ready for communion. It's a short message today. Uh, Number three, if you're taking notes, some of you can't change bad habits because you're taking them to the law instead of the cross. Some of you can't change bad habits because you're taking them to the law instead of to the cross. Here's what I mean by that. You might be thinking, what? Take what to the what? Uh, Let me see if I can explain it. Rules by themselves do not tend to create lasting change. In fact, we, we talked about this. My, my uh, sister taught us just this past week in parenting class that if the only thing preventing your kid from bad behavior is their fear of the, your punishment, like that's not going to end well for you when they turn 18, right? Because all of a sudden the punishment is gone and now they can do whatever they want. And that, that's, that's true uh, for us, too, that, that the law in and of itself, it had a purpose. But the law is not what causes people to begin to live a good life. That, that's not, rules by themselves don't tend to create great people. And so, so Jesus has another way, though. Notice the order. I think the order is what's all important here. Notice it, it's not this, go and leave your life of sin, and then I won't condemn you. It's not that. It's, I don't condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. And the, the order is all important, right? Because it's, it's the first part that makes the second part possible. It's, it's the understanding, the acceptance that God has to offer you 
that makes real life change even something that you can accomplish. Life change comes from the place of first being accepted by God and you understanding that you're accepted by God. But lots of us have that backwards. Lots of us are trying to change our life so that God will blah, 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 right? Uh, And even people who've been following God for a long time fall into this. Don't tell me I'm the only one that someone is sick and all of a sudden you get super interested in fasting because you're thinking somehow that's going to maybe change something. It's just so easy to fall into this. Maybe if I do something, then God will come and respond uh, to me. The the acceptance that God has to offer us is, um, is step one. And behavior modification uh, is step two. You don't eliminate sin by focusing on sin. You don't. You don't eliminate sin by focusing on it. I remember when I was uh, a teenager in youth group in this church, we went to a camp one time, and they separated the boys and the girls. I was like, okay, here comes the porn talk. If you're a boy, you know, I don't know, girls are taught gossip probably, toxic gossip with the girls, porn with the boys. So we were horrified to learn, us boys, that, that um, if you lust after a girl, they said, that's just as bad as if you have adultery with the girl. What? We're thinking, oh my God, it's awful. And so me and my friends, as 16-year-olds, we make a pact. And here's the pact. It's that every time we have a lustful thought, we would write it on a piece of paper. Is that crazy? So, so we just ride, walking in school. You look up, you look down. <laughs> Done with more paper. I need more paper. We were 16. I don't think there's enough trees on the planet to provide enough paper. Uh, so what, what do you think happened? Do you think, do you think uh, we magically stopped lusting? No, we just lusted more. It just made it, just made it worse because you just, you just focus on it. See, that's taking your sin to the law. That's taking your sin to the law. But taking your sin to the cross is something very different than that. Taking your sin to the cross is you getting off the treadmill of trying to look worthy trying to look worthy to God, maybe trying to look worthy to your parents or your coworkers, or maybe even to look worthy to yourself. Instead, it's about just receiving the free gift of grace. And here's the beautiful side effect of understanding God's grace for you, is it, it changes you, right? But that's, that's, the, that's the fruit, not the root of the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is the kindness that is offered to you, the grace and mercy of God extended to you through Jesus. The grace and mercy extended to you. And what's great is when you understand that, you begin to change automatically. I remember uh, one of my old mentors, Andrew Walmack, he used to say, if you get a revelation of God's grace, you'll live better accidentally than you ever did on purpose. Uh, sounded better with a Texas accent. Uh, but it's, it's true. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't require effort. It absolutely does. But real life, real life change comes from the understanding that you're first accepted by God. 
And so, so our change doesn't come from us understanding God hates that. God abhors that. Okay, well, that's not step one. Step one is God really loves you and God accepts you, right? And then the call after that is, now let's go leave this life of sin. But the order is all important. Here's a closing statement. Uh, The story of the woman caught in adultery teaches us that God's love is not dependent on what you do or don't do. He loves you faithfully and consistently even before you come to him. That doesn't mean he'll leave you the same. With the grace he extends comes a call to obedience. This too is an expression of his love. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to accept Christ's free grace and to allow that grace to change you from the inside out. And that's what really uh, we, we remember when we receive uh, communion. I think what's amazing, if you think about it like this, is that, that in this story, God's grace is not only for the woman, the story is also for the men who are throwing rocks. And, and you may see yourself more as one or the other, right? So wh- whether or not you feel like you are the accused or maybe you acknowledge that more times than you'd like to admit you're the accuser. Either way, the solution is the same, which is God's free grace to you. And so as they pass, what I would like you to do is just spend a minute opening your heart to God, the God who sees you, the God who knows you, and the God who accepts you. God, God wants you to open your heart to him and just rest. I think there's a, this beautiful rest in these little moments, if you can take away all of your pretense, all the things you think you're supposed to be in these moments and just offer to God the reality of who you are, the good, the bad, the wrong, the right, the confused, the clear, and just offering it to God um, as an offering.